0: Policies of Exclusion, Poverty and Health, Stories from the Front. Compiled, Introduction and Reports by Crystal Ocean. Copyright 2005, Wise Group. Episode 2, The Stories. Chris, Note. This story originated the project. See Introduction. Method, Auto. I have written my story with the hope that somewhere, sometime, a policymaker will read it and come to see that government employment and financial assistance programs effectively marginalize the mentally ill. I hope further that it will be seen that poverty not only can cause mental illness, but that it feeds mental illness, helping it to flourish. I recognize now that my mental illness began when I was four, manifested in a feeling of deep despair, felt physically as a permanent lump in my throat and tension in my abdomen. At four, I had come to know that, to the extent that my mother thought of me at all, it was in terms of how I would serve her. Essentially, she aimed to shape me into an object that exemplified her view of herself— that of a being of the utmost perfection beauty and intelligence whose very presence bestowed a blessing upon others this object of her creation was expected to adore her to exhibit no human frailties to be invisible unless called upon to serve to be quiescent to have no will and so no identity of its own my sibling one year younger than me, was viewed as less malleable. That he was a boy didn't help. Our mother gave him up early, when he was three, to the first couple that would take him. This was the second and final time my brother and I were separated. I dared to beg in the early years that my mother give me up too, but she didn't, until I was almost 14, and then it was to the Toronto Children's Aid Society. C. A. S. After my brother left, I missed him, of course, but was relieved that he had escaped early before I na- naively assumed any damage had been done. Once I was handed over to the C. A. S., it took four months before I noticed that the children being placed in foster homes were the children who were cutting themselves. Suffice it to say that soon after I was placed in a foster home, too. By Christmas of that year, however, I realized something else, that I didn't know how to receive or give affection. The guilt drove me to attempt suicide. Since suicide was a criminal offense in those days, I was brought before a judge and sentenced to Toronto's Lakeshore Psychiatric Hospital, LPH. At 14, I was the youngest patient they'd had, and they didn't know what to do with me. One month after I arrived at LPH, my CAS worker told me I had been cleared to leave the hospital. This surprised me, since I had seen a psychiatrist twice and felt no better than on my arrival. My worker also told me that the CAS couldn't find a foster home for me and that I would have to stay at LPH until something came up. This turned out to be 10 months later. Psychiatric Visits Within a week of arriving at LPH, I was seen briefly by a psychiatrist who assessed me as, quote, emotionally disturbed, unquote. A month later, I was seen even more briefly by another psychiatrist. The third and last visit was 11 months after my arrival. Its purpose being to formalize my release. Life at LPH LPH housed people whose mental health ranged widely, from the perfectly normal to the criminally insane. Among the patients was 1. A 15 year old male who was there for monitoring the drug therapy for his epilepsy, 2. A 16 year old female who kept cutting herself three, a woman in her mid-forties who stopped screaming only when she slept, four, a 26-year-old male who sought to kill, kill police officers whenever he drank a drop of beer. The last of these, Bruce, became my best friend. In fact, he was my first love. Although it would have been easy for Bruce to take advantage of me, We were always, and to the end, constant companions only. I trusted him, and he never hurt me. I witnessed horrible things at LPH, including shock treatments, and I came to know and become friends with many twisted, not-so-twisted, normal, and merely eccentric people. LPH felt like home to me. It still does. I pine for that sense of belonging, community, and acceptance that I felt when I was there. In all other situations and places, I feel awkward and an outsider, and don't know how to interact with people. A couple of months into my stay at LPH, I was given a battery of tests to determine my IQ and vocational aptitude. Although I was discovered to have a genius IQ, the CAS sent me to secretarial school. Being a secretary, apparently, was the height to which a female could aspire in the 60s. After LPH, my life, with depression always lurking, soared and plunged its weary way. I was gang-raped at 15, with more sexual bandying about to follow. Married and divorced twice, and raised two children. The life of wife and mother doesn't feel like mine, although this body bears the scars of pregnancy and childbirth. Intellectually curious, I began to pursue learning opportunities in my 30s. I studied high school calculus and physics via distance education. At 41, I began university study, the first dozen courses also by distance education. At 43, I switched to on-campus study, and by 45, had finished my B.A. and M.A. I won awards and scholarships, including the Shirk for doctoral studies, and got within months of completing a double Ph.D., Throughout my doctoral studies, the depression gave me few breaks and I felt a building tension. The life and identity I was trying to discover or create was beginning to unravel. I've tried to understand why and suspect it that it's because the postgraduate process is another form of indoctrination, of learning to think and do in a prescribed way as dictated by others, Oddly, this indoctrination is more pronounced the higher one goes up the academic ladder. Where you might expect more freedom for creativity and inventiveness to flourish, you find instead added restrictions. Further, the very nature of academic study involves argument with students expected to assert a thesis or defend a position. Things are much more a battleground than a playground. All my life, I've avoided battlegrounds. In the summer of 2000, I abandoned my efforts for the doctorate and came home to BC. I still had an M.A., had always been able to find work, and had entrepreneurial instincts. I've been a stenographer, bookkeeper, go-go dancer, letter carrier, pizza delivery driver, choreographer, dance instructor, computer consultant, web designer, census representative, elections officer, university instructor, conference presenter, small business owner. I've lost track of the number of things I've done and the skills I've learned, most self-taught. It never occurred to me that I'd be unable to find work. Having been a student for the previous seven years, I had very little money, but what I did have in the form of a small RRSP, I put into an an old mobile home and a down payment on a new car. My intention had been to buy a ten-year-old Toyota, not a new car, but no one would approve a loan for this. It turns out that if you're out of the country for a period of time—I'd been studying the PhD elsewhere—your credit record is wiped clean. Same with your driving record. At 50 years old, I had to start all over again, rebuilding my credit and paying the maximum in car insurance. There was nothing left with which to furnish the mobile, and it remained as it was when I moved in virtually empty and certainly bare. There was no money to buy pots and pans and other kitchen utensils, garden tools and supplies, drapes, paint, sufficient fuel for the winter, a proper bed and chair, and so on. Despite this, the first couple of months I was optimistic. I only became anxious as the weeks, months, and now years went by. Early in 2001, Into this already stressful situation came a voice from the past. An email from my brother said that he wanted to re establish our relationship, something I'd yearned for most of my life. However, his contacting me at that time was more than I could handle. He wanted to know all about me, my interests, hopes, attitudes, and values. He hoped, he said, that, quote, by learning about you, I will learn about myself, unquote. My brother's contact precipitated a downward spiral that continues to this day, aided and abetted by poverty. I am someone who lives with mental illness daily and is unable to access medical, employment, and financial help for reasons that include the mental illness itself. On the financial front, I don't meet the criteria for government programs. Although in 2000 I was a postgraduate, I wasn't under 30 years old and therefore wasn't eligible for student programs. Although I'm unemployed, I'm not eligible for employment insurance since I haven't been able to find enough employment to build up the requisite number of hours. Although my income is only $200 a month gross from self employment, I don't qualify for welfare since I sold my old mobile home and currently have more than $500 in the bank. Regarding employment assistance, although I want to find work, I'm not eligible for government employment assistance programs such such as JobWave and Community Futures since I'm not collecting financial assistance. Even if I did qualify for self-employment assistance from Community Futures, the small business I've worked so hard over the past two years to build would not qualify. Only new self-employment opportunities are funded. Although I'd be happy to get my computer qualifications certified, I'm not eligible for government training assistance programs, again because I'm not collecting financial assistance. My new car was repossessed. By that time, I'd have owned an old Toyota. My chances of finding employment are even less than before. The one good temporary job I found in 2001 was for Census Canada. A requirement for that job was a car. Ironically, I made just enough with that job to pay my insurance and car payments for the year. Desperate and within a month of homelessness, in October 2002, I got an offer on my mobile home, which had been up for sale for almost a year. I guiltily bought a decent bed, desk and desk chair, and bits and pieces like a toilet bowl brush. Most importantly, I used $2,000 for advertising, which I knew wouldn't be enough, but I had to try. As I write this, there is $5,000 left, and I continue to live without items that most people take for granted. "'I don't go to the doctor even when something occurs "'that would have other people making an appointment immediately. "'There is no point. "'I don't have the $10 per visit fee for physiotherapy "'to correct my shoulder and back problems, "'or the $100 per year for prescription medication, "'or the $300 plus to be fitted and supplied with with orthotics "'to correct my gait, or... "'I haven't seen a dentist in years.' One tooth was chipped three years ago and bites into my cheek. My gums are receding, some teeth are loose. I chew my food carefully to preserve what teeth I have left. As the poverty increases and I can't find work, my mental health worsens. As my mental health worsens, social interaction becomes harder and I do less well in interviews. I've stopped trying to find an employer since the repeated rejection has become more than I can bear. I avoid people for fear I'll start crying. Whatever caused the crisis, I've been unable to get help. Part of the problem is the inability to ask for it. An early and frequent lesson was that help, even a small favor, came only with a price. I also fear that people won't hear me, or if they do, they will respond with disdain. The inability to ask for help is so extreme that when I've tried over the past few years by telephone or in person, I panic and freeze into a sort of catatonic state, particularly when someone asks a question with you or your in it, words that I hear as accusations. My financial position encourages an attitude that I've had for as long as I can remember, that of waiting for death. I'm not suicidal in the usual sense of someone who would take an overt act to end their life. Rather, there is an absence or quashing of the instinct for self-preservation. For example, I suspect I've had two mild heart attacks in the past months, the last time All I could think of was the state of the corpse and how it might offend the medics who found it. That prompted me to get out of bed, wash up, and get dressed, while the tightening in my chest persisted. I've tried to reach out to the local mental health unit, but each time the response has shown a lack of understanding of how crippling mental illness can be. In one phone call, the mental health professional asked, What do you want to do, I told her I couldn't decide, that making decisions became harder the more stressed I became. She just waited at the other end of the line, repeating her question. I hung up and haven't called again. I've been told of a psychologist who has a private practice in Victoria, one who specializes in abuse of the sort I experienced. His technique sounds like it could help me. I cannot afford him, of course, nor the cost of getting there. I am getting some counselling at the local branch of Women Against Violence Against Women, WAVA. Of all the professionals who have tested and prodded me, from the CAS and LPH to the local mental health unit, this counsellor is the only one who has shown empathy. The others have taken notes and distantly observed, as though I were a subject in a lab. It's like talking to a wall. While I live with mental illness, there is a lot I could contribute to my community and to the cause of the poor and mentally ill. I am particularly passionate about the links between the two and have written to my MP on more than one occasion. Unfortunately and predictably, the responses referred me to the very programs whose eligibility criteria I wrote as excluding people like me. I suspect my letters were never read. I need to work, not the least because working gives me reason to keep going. I can't feel good about myself for my own sake, but I can, when given the opportunity, feel good about myself for the sake of what I might do for others.